Class action lawsuits, a uniquely American legal concept, held by some as the great equalizer, denounced by others as an engine of destruction, all agree that class action lawsuits can have an outsized impact on industries and society as a whole. But why? American class actions stem from a relatively innocuous procedural rule, Rule 23 of the Federal Rules of Civil Procedure and its state analogs, which allow a court to certify a case for group litigation. One plaintiff, or a small group of plaintiffs, will represent a class of similarly situated persons in that case. The purpose underlying the rule was to promote efficiency, judicial economy, and to mitigate the potential for inconsistent verdicts in similar cases. Despite these benign origins, class action lawsuits have produced some of the most famous cases in American law. Brown v. Board of Education, which dismantled the separate but equal doctrine. Roe v. Wade, which, until the last Supreme Court term, afforded women with the right to choose. The Enron securities litigation. Agent Orange, product liability cases. Environmental cases like Anderson v. Pack Gas and Electric, made famous by the movie Aaron Brockovich. The list goes on and on. Settlements in class action cases can reach the billions of dollars. Therefore, under the procedural device set forth in Rule 23, a small claims case between a consumer and a company can be transformed into bet-the-company litigation with the stroke of a judge's pen. If the court approves the case for class treatment, process known as class certification, the plaintiff with a $3,000 case can represent hundreds, thousands, or even millions of individuals with similar claims. As renowned Seventh Circuit Judge Richard Posner explained, if a plaintiff succeeds in gaining class certification, even a defendant with strong defenses may not wish to roll the dice and instead may succumb to the intense pressure to settle. Given the stakes, such cases are often won or lost at the class certification phase. However, as the late Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia explained in his decision in Walmart v. Dukes, one of the largest class certification cases in American history, a class action is, quote, an exception to the usual rule that litigation is conducted by and on behalf of the individual named parties only, end quote. Therefore, in order to qualify for this exception, the plaintiff has the burden to prove, usually at the earliest stages of the litigation, that it would be worth it, that judicial economy and efficiency outweigh any procedural unfairness to the defendants and any other undesirable results. To satisfy this burden, the plaintiff must prove that the class members are similarly situated, that common issues of fact and law exist throughout the class, and that those common issues predominate over individual issues of each particular plaintiff. One recent class action battle involved a used car dealer in Massachusetts, Automax Pre-Owned Inc., whose business model included the purchase of used cars at auction for resale from its lot. One buyer, Carlos Cabrera was interested in purchasing a 2008 Infiniti. He asked for the Carfax, which came back clean, and thereafter bought the car for $28,000. A few years later, however, when he went to resell the vehicle, he learned that its value was lower than he thought 
because according to a recently updated Carfax, the vehicle had sustained structural damage, which was disclosed to Automax at auction, but was not disclosed to Cabrera before the sale. After filing his lawsuit, Cabrera argued that hundreds of other Automax customers had gone through the same experience, and he moved to certify a class on their behalf. Would this end up as little more than a small claims case, or would it be transformed into bet-the-company litigation? This is Cabrera versus Automax. Welcome to Legal Judgments, where we tackle litigation and trial strategy by analyzing and talking about real legal cases. I'm your host, Bob Stetson, a Boston-based trial lawyer at Bernkoff. Today we're discussing, without question, the most hotly contested procedural rule in American law, Rule 23. To help us understand the class certification process in that rule is Mark Aronson, a rising star in the class action defense world and partner at the boutique litigation firm of Boyle Shaughnessy Law. Welcome, Mark. Thanks for joining. Thanks, Bob. Good to see you. Mark, let's kick this off with a strategy question. Ordinarily, as I alluded to in the opening, class certification questions are presented at the earliest stages of a case. This makes sense because approval or denial of class treatment will impact discovery, trial preparations, and certainly settlement discussions in a very significant way. That's probably an understatement. But here, instead of addressing class certification at the outset, you moved for summary judgment. In other words, you moved to dismiss Cabrera's case before he could even argue for certification. And although you lost that battle, the first judge denied summary judgment, you ultimately won the war in substantial part due to the groundwork that you had laid in your summary judgment motion. In particular, when the second judge denied class certification, in his decision, he specifically referred to the summary judgment decision and the reasoning from that decision as illustrative of the individualized nature of these class members' disputes with Automax. And that was a significant grounds for his denial of class certification. In other words, because of the detailed and fact-specific nature of this liability analysis, there was insufficient evidence of commonality to support a class certification. But again, in most class certification instances, defense counsel would not have had the benefit of that summary judgment decision. But you did here. Why did you embark on this unusual but highly effective strategy. So, well, again, thanks for having me, Bob. And before I I dive into the litigation strategy, I'll just add a little bit about the background. And really, this case is not about a Carfax report. It's actually about two Carfax reports. And for your listeners who don't know what Carfax is, they are, you know, a centralized company that has contracts with garages, auction houses, 
car dealers and they collect data on our vehicles. And that data is available for purchase at, I think, $29.99 is the going rate right now. And what they report, whether it's right or wrong, has a major influence on the value of the cars we drive every day. And what happened to Mr. Cabrera, and I can understand why he felt somewhat cheated in a sense, was he bought a car that had a clean Carfax. He drove it without incident for six years. By all accounts, it held up very well. And then he went to sell it and his Carfax had changed and now they are reporting something called structural damage. What I think happened here is in the interim, Carfax entered into a contract with the auction house got a whole bunch of data, and therefore they changed what they were reporting on his particular car. But I handled this case for years. I spoke to multiple experts. I spoke to my client representatives, of course, who are experts on the subject. And I couldn't come up with a standardized definition of structural damage. It's a very subjective term. So what happened in this case was my client bought a car. They found a car at an auction. It was in, by all accounts, very good shape. They bought it and they sold it to Mr. Cabrera. And to answer your question, the strategy decision was really a product of group thinking. You know, we had a, a team on this one because of the possible exposure. I had an associate, now partner named Tim Wadman, who's a, a rising young star, a sophisticated general counsel who really knows litigation. Plus, I was working with a clients person. And I remember thinking when this case came in, how will they ever prove class certification? And my recommendation at the time was, why don't we challenge class certification? If we defeat it, this claim might go to small claims court. It might just go away. Someone else on the team had a, a different view. She was kind of a amateur mechanic. Her view was, this is de minimis, a bend in a rocker panel, which is something literally underneath the car that you can't see. And what she wanted to do was take a deposition and immediately move for summary judgment. And I thought long and hard about that, and my thoughts were the legal argument would need to be this puncture in the rocker panel, what have you, is immaterial as a matter of law. And I remember thinking to myself, maybe it is immaterial. I think we got a real shot at that, but convincing a judge at summary judgment that it's immaterial as a matter of law was going to be a real challenge. And then we thought more about it. I took Mr. Cabrera's deposition you know, early on. I was trying to establish a rapport with him, as I usually do at depositions. And I asked him something very early, something like, you know, how's the car holding up? He said, it drives perfectly. I asked him how many miles on it. He said 140,000. So I established early on that he has put 100,000 miles on the car. And I thought to myself, maybe this materiality argument could potentially have traction. We roundtabled it again. And... It kind of dawned on me, there's really two ways to prove this case on behalf of Mr. Cabrera and plus on behalf of the class. You could actually say the car itself has a defect and here it is and I'm entitled to damages for the difference between what I paid and what its actual value was. Or he could do something very different and he could say it doesn't matter. The condition of the car doesn't matter. The problem is this car has been marked. It's been marked by this big national company that has a lot of influence over the value of my car. So that's another option for him. And I think he had problems you know, from a liability and class certification with both of those. If he was going with option one, it'd be a real challenge to prove class certification because you would really need an 
expert report that relates to every single class vehicle. If he chose option two, this car has been marked, he'd have a tough sell on liability because my client is not in control of what Carfax reports. So we ultimately decided to move for summary judgment to kind of force the other side to take a position on how they were going to go about proving that case. And the plan was to take Mr. Cabrera's deposition, hire you know, an automotive expert to inspect the car, and then depending on what his view was, move for summary judgment. And it's funny, I remember being at the inspection, actually, we had the car up on a lift, and I, and I remember seeing this, the rocker panel damage, and I'll tell you, I was joking, I could have grabbed a pair of pliers, just bent it right back, and nobody would have known it was there. So long story short, Mr. Cabrera's lawyer decided to go with option one, and he had his own auto damage expert there, and it was kind of a, a joint inspection. And our guy prepared a report saying, this is de minimis, doesn't affect drivability, doesn't affect safety, and for that reason, it didn't affect its value. Their report was very different. Their expert, and I don't understand the basis for it, I couldn't follow it, but their expert said that this rocker panel damage could have impacted the timing of the side airbag, and therefore it was material in the sense that it potentially rendered the car unsafe. Like you said, we lost that battle. We, we were before Judge Davis on summary judgment, and if you read his decision, he suggested what well, the fact that Mr. Cabrera drove the car 100,000 miles suggests to me this is immaterial. What I see, in fact, is a de minimis deflection that does not impact safety. However, it's not my job to sit as fact finder on summary judgment. Therefore, the motion's denied. And then we went on and there were a host of issues on class certification. But one thing I've learned in this business, we have judges who rotate, as you know, in the Superior Court. They don't like overruling each other. And I thought that arguing that the summary judgment ruling effectively compels the conclusion that you can't prove this case collectively would be very persuasive. And based on the way Judge Kaplan wrote it up, he seemed to agree with me on that. Absolutely. So I want to just ask another question on the strategy here, because as an outsider looking in, and you obviously had a compelling argument to be made, even at summary judgment, given the liberal standards of summary judgment, Judge Davis seemed to agree with you and your presentation, even though he felt compelled to deny that summary judgment motion. But what if it had gone the other way? What if he had dismissed Cabrera's case altogether. Was there any fear or any concern that maybe you might be a victim of your own success? In other words, maybe these plaintiff's attorneys go out and find another representative for the class that has a more compelling case? So what you're saying happens all the time in class action litigation, and defendants always hate to provide class discovery, identifying class members for that very reason. Yes, that was a consideration. You know, if a lot of cases, defendants like to wait, certify a class first, then move for summary judgment, because there are ways that you could make that summary judgment ruling binding on absent class members. But I think the concern was mitigated to a certain extent, given that a lot of the class vehicles we identified were sold outside the statute of limitations. In fact, that was a major issue in this case. And again, going back to the, you know, the fundamental premise, every car is different. I saw it as individual actions and we were ready to defend each one 
separately on the merits. So you touched on class discovery. That's a big issue in these types of lawsuits and how much is allowed prior to class certification, I'm sure is something that looms large in the client's mind because it can be super expensive to engage in significant discovery. And not being a class action lawyer myself, I think that this is a fascinating piece of the class certification process. But I think in order to discuss that issue, which I do want to come back to, I want to lay a little bit of of groundwork though. And I think we need to discuss what is the quantum of proof or what is the evidence that is necessary at the class certification phase? You know, I'm used to like standards like prima facie evidence or preponderance of the evidence, which you would see at trial. Or as we were just discussing a few moments ago, the summary judgment standard, which is whether or not there are any, you know, which judgment should enter as a matter of law because there are no material facts in dispute. From my read, again, it's a cursory read, but from my read of these cases, the standard of proof to certify a class is probably somewhere in the middle, something a little bit more exacting than the summary judgment standard we've been talking about, but perhaps not quite as exacting as the preponderance of evidence standard that you might see at trial. So what, you know, based on your experience, what do you see as the standard of proof here in these types of class certification motions? So I'll tell you, in my experience, it's actually very liberal at the class certification stage, very plaintiff friendly. And the magic language comes from an SJC case called Weld. The plaintiff need only provide information sufficient to allow the court to form a reasonable judgment that class certification would be appropriate. Now, it can be certified where there are individual issues. The only question really is whether common issues predominate. And I think the overarching question is, is there a reasoned way to prove this case on behalf of a class using common evidence, largely using the defendant's own records, which is generally how plaintiffs prove their case. But as an aside, the you know states all have their corollaries to Rule 23, as does Massachusetts. But the focus of this case was the 93A claim. There were six or seven claims pled, but it was very clearly that was the cornerstone of the case. And that's an even less of the magic language for that standard is the plaintiff needs to show that the unfair or deceptive act or practice caused similar injury to numerous other people in the Commonwealth, and the plaintiff can fairly and adequately represent those people. There's not a lot of case law interpreting the difference between that standard and Rule 23, but the cases are pretty clear that it is an even less demanding standard than the fairly liberal Rule 23 standard. So basically, if you can't satisfy the standard under Chapter 93A, which we've talked about it on the show before, but that's the unfair and deceptive acts and practices statute in Massachusetts designed to protect consumers. If you can't satisfy that standard, therefore, you cannot satisfy the Rule 23 standard. Is that what yep. you're saying? So, and yes, and that, in fact, that is the approach Judge Kaplan took, and that's the approach the appeals court took in probably the seminal case called Quack v. Pfizer. And another point on that, it's really a discretionary determination. It's reviewed for abuse of discretion. So judges really have a lot of power in this case. And going back to your opening, a favorable ruling for a plaintiff on class certification will often result in a massive settlement because 
there's no right to an interlocutory appeal. So a defendant who feels the judge got it wrong has got to try the case if there are facts to be tried and then wait for final judgment. Could be treble damages. Most likely there'll be a, a fee application and only then can they take an appeal. It's such a unique facet, class action lawsuits, is this whole idea that it's based on a procedural rule. And oftentimes with procedural rules, as you and I well know, it does come down to the judge's discretion. And one of those areas that I want to come back to, because we started to talk about it, is discovery. Because I think depending on the case, depending on the type of discovery that's ultimately provided, perhaps you could make a compelling case at that stage to appeal to the reasoned judgment of your judge in that case, who has a lot of discretion to certify or to deny the certification. And so in light of the fact that the defendants are primarily going to be in control of whatever items are necessary to flesh out the class certification, what is the discovery that is allowed? You know, under the rules of procedure, we know that general fishing expeditions are not allowed. But on the other hand, I'm sure plaintiffs' attorneys in these types of cases are saying, hey, look, if we can't get at least some discovery here, we're not going to be able to make our case at all. And so that's going to be a discretionary call for most judges as well. So in your experience, what kinds of discovery are allowed and what are the what are the battlegrounds when it comes to the discovery issues prior to class certification? So I'll tell you, in my experience, there really is no hard and fast rule. I guess the default rule is the plaintiff is entitled to discovery of relevant materials and information. And relevance would go to their allegations, which would be liability issues and class issues. The flip side is Rule 26C, as you know, allows a judge to impose reasonable limitations on discovery for things like undue burden and things like the cost of that particular discovery would really, you know, outweigh its probative value. And you're absolutely right. They certainly don't want to permit plaintiffs going on a, a full-fledged fishing expedition. And you know, by any chance, you know what, you know what rule one says? The purpose of the rules is to promote the just, speedy, and efficient resolution of civil cases, or? You forgot one important word. What did I forget? Inexpensive. Inexpensive. That's in the federal rule and that's in the state rule. It's funny. It's a little cited rule and a little known rule, but it's something I always cite when I'm moving for a protective order, you know, as a companion to rule 26. What you see a lot is defendants trying to bifurcate discovery. You know, if there's a real issue on class certification, let's do some limited class discovery, move for class certification. Maybe the issue goes away. The flip side, if there's a a compelling defense to the individual claim, maybe you want to do individual merits first, put off class discovery, because if you can get summary judgment on the individual claim, there's no class action anymore because there's no class representative suing on behalf of the client. And another observation is this. The case law does draw this distinction between merits discovery and class discovery, but I think more often than not, there's really no way to define what is what. There's no line of demarcation. And I think this case is a good example. The way the plaintiffs developed this case 
tried to identify class members, and they did. They, they identified about 200 class vehicles on their own, but they did that by sending keeper of record subpoenas to the auction houses that my client was purchasing cars from at the time. And I had no standing to really move to quash or challenge those. They identified the cars. We went to my client's file room and my client back in those days, everything was hard copy paper. They sell a lot of cars. The transaction file could be 50 pages. They sell 100, 150 cars a month. So they have a warehouse full of file cabinets. It was absolutely overwhelming. We went in there, we pulled all of the sales files for just the 200 class vehicles that the plaintiff was able to identify. I went through them, they didn't hurt. You know, I saw things like, yes, the auction reported checked a box, it says structural, but it was repaired. Or maybe in this particular case, the Carfax said structural damage. Maybe in this particular case, it said structural damage and the purchaser actually signed their name on it. So the sales files from my perspective really didn't hurt. So we produced them. We, I think we redacted credit information, social security numbers, stuff like that. Another thing defendants really like to do is try and redact the uh, contact information for potential class members for the reason we were discussing before. But in my experience, most Massachusetts judges will allow that type of discovery to proceed. So we produced that. And believe it or not, this ended up in a lengthy motion to compel. It was filed as an emergency motion to compel. We were before Judge Kaplan for a good hour and a half. And what the plaintiff wanted me to do in the motion, a, a few different things, but he was moving to compel us to go through literally every sales file and identify class members for him. In addition to the 200 he already found. For obvious reasons, I opposed that. And Judge Kaplan, who is a very well-respected trial judge, in fact, one of certainly one of the intellectual leaders of the court up until you know his recent retirement, what he did was, here's what we're gonna do. It's not the defendant's job to prove the plaintiff's case. I'm gonna allow you eight hours in their file room. It's gonna be done pursuant to a, a quick peek slash confidentiality agreement. You can't take photos, you can't take notes, you're gonna be supervised by defense counsel, which I thought was a great ruling because if I, if I had eight hours in there, I would be absolutely overwhelmed. So we did the inspection. He may have found a few more class member vehicles, but that's essentially what happened in our case. So the other part is once you've gotten through your pre-class certification discovery, then you're getting your presentation ready for the class certification motion, in your case, in opposition to that. The other piece of potentially persuasive evidence is experts. And I know you had an expert or a series of experts. Tell us a little bit about what is the role of experts when it comes to class certification issues and what was the role of the experts in this particular case? So I think the answer is what you hear from a lot of lawyers. It depends. And in fact, I would say admission of expert testimony is, is not unlike admitting expert testimony at trial or using it for purposes of summary judgment. You know, if the court sitting not really as fact finder, but deciding class certification needs an expert to assist the court in understanding evidence that goes beyond, you know, the general experience of a layperson, that's when you can submit expert testimony in, con in the context of a class certification motion. 
And the Supreme Court actually had a, a fairly recent case in, involving this issue. Called, it was a Tyson Foods case. You're nodding your head, so I think you know it. It was. A, I printed it out. It's over. It's in my <laughs> notes right now. Well, that's a Fair Labor Standards Act case involving overtime. And the issue there was the employer didn't record overtime hours. And the plaintiffs were trying to prove a class action alleging that fair to pay overtime. And it had to do with time spent donning and doffing, I think is the word everybody uses, putting on and taking off protective equipment. It was a, a bunch of employees working in a, I think a a meatpacking factory. And what they did, the plaintiffs hired a biomechanical engineer, kind of an unusual field, to watch videos of people putting on, taking off this equipment. You know, they did surveys as to how much time it took. And they kind of came up with a, you know, a representative plan and calculated, you know, the average amount of time it would have taken to put this stuff on, take this stuff off. The plan was to kind of add that to the regular hours that had been reported. And that was their means of, one, showing that they could get past the class certification stage and prove their case collectively, and two, going to trial and proving their case. So that was one instance where a plaintiff did use an expert to get past the Rule 23 hurdle. I had another similar one, an overtime case, a sleepies class action, which is We've seen a lot of those in Massachusetts lately, but it's also an overtime case. And there was a time during the class period when my client wasn't recording hours. And I kind of saw that as a blessing and a curse. I mean, the blessing was, well, how do you prove any particular plaintiff worked overtime if you don't have the data to prove it? Now, the curse was, is a judge really going to rule in my client's favor because it didn't do something it was supposed to do, namely (laughs) record hours? So in trying to figure out what the exposure was, and in fact, we settled this one, and it was an assented to motion for class certification and settlement approval, but we got a forensic accountant to go through the hours that were recorded for the time when hours were being recorded, and then kind of project those hours back to the time period when hours were not being recorded as a principled means of really getting the case settled because we needed to convince a judge that the settlement was, you know, fair and reasonable. But really going to this case, it's funny you mentioned experts because I was thinking one avenue the plaintiff could go down was to get an expert in auto appraisal, auto valuation, and to say something like a structural damage notation in a Carfax report equates to a a certain discount in fair market value. I mean, they could maybe come up with a formula or just say, this is the average 500, 1,000, and they could apply that across the board to really every class. But they didn't go down that route. We really just had liability experts looking at the actual condition of this particular vehicle, you know, as we talked about. And ironically, the plaintiff's expert who was supporting the plaintiff's claim on liability really kind of helped me out when it came to class certification. So that was kind of a long-winded answer, but that was generally the role of experts in my case. So I want to, for for what I think is probably my last question, I want to get to the preparation of your opposition to the class certification motion. And I wanted, I know I mentioned the Walmart versus Dukes case briefly in the opening, In that case, Betty Dukes sought to certify, as I mentioned, the largest certification 
in American history. It was like a group of 1.5 million current or former female employees of Walmart. And they were suing under the Civil Rights Act, Title VII, asking for back pay and some other things, and basically claiming that they were discriminated against. There was disparate treatment that they were denied equal opportunity for promotions or they were paid lower amounts, what have you. In a five to four decision, the Supreme Court rejected certification on lack of commonality grounds, essentially. The opinion, again, it was authored by the late Antonin Scalia, explained that there was insufficient, quote, glue holding together these wide and varied allegations of disparate treatment. Basically, the employment decisions at issue stemmed out of unique circumstances involving unique people in unique areas of the country, and therefore it lacked the commonality sort of necessary to satisfy Rule 23's requirements. But the issue, as I read the Walmart case, it really came down to how you frame the issue in the case. And to reach the result of denying certification, Justice Scalia, he framed the issue as, why was I disfavored? That's in quotes. In other words, why was this particular plaintiff treated unfairly or differently than another employee, different than a man, for instance? Because there was no common answer to that question, why was I disfavored, the court said there was not enough commonality and it rejected class certification. Now, framing the issue made all the difference there. As I read the papers in your case, it seemed to have made all the difference here as well. So I'd love for you to explain or, or share how you went about framing the issues and ultimately persuading the judge that that was the right way to characterize the main issues in the case. So I absolutely agree. Framing the issues is key, as with probably any motion, or even when you're making your opening statement in front of a jury before trial, framing the issues is key. And in this particular context, whether the Rule 23 standard has been satisfied, I would say it is informed by the elements of the underlying substantive claim on which the plaintiff is seeking certification. And I think the overarching question is, is there a reasoned means of proving this collectively? The gist of this case was 93A. And if you go through my opposition, you'll see I framed a lot of issues. In fact, I went through them one by one and argued that every single one of them is not amenable to collective proof. There was a threshold issue, the statute of limitations, for example. We did some research. The sales files we had plus the sales files that were no longer extant, I may not have pointed that out, but we only had about half of them. A lot of them were pretty old, but we learned through publicly available R&B records that a lot of these proposed class members, their claims would have been barred by the statute of limitations. Mr. Cabrera's claim itself was barred by the statute of limitations. And if you read his complaint, you'll see that they at least set forth allegations that would establish that. And I was using that at, you know, in the hearing, and that's something Judge Kaplan put in a footnote, but 
the discovery rule has an objective component that I guess could be proven by collective evidence, but it also has a subjective component. So to decide whether the plaintiff has carried his burden of proving the discovery rule, at least I argued, would mean that you got to know subjectively what every individual class member knew and when about the condition of their vehicles. The substantive claim itself, the elements of a 93A claim, non-disclosure of a material fact that would have caused the plaintiff not to enter into the transaction. I argued every single one of those cannot be proven collectively. And take the non-disclosure, the very first issue, was there a non-disclosure? Wouldn't that depend entirely on the circumstances of the particular transaction with the particular person? We don't know what was said between the salesperson and the absent class member. Did the absent class member access a Carfax report? Were they given a Carfax report that said structural damage? Did they find it themselves? Did they have a mechanic in there looking at it saying, I see structural damage? So I guess the first substantive issue was, was there a non-disclosure in the first instance? The next issue that I framed for Judge Kaplan was the undisclosed fact, a material fact. Now we look at Carlos Cabrera. He drove his car 100,000. He told me at his deposition, it drove perfectly. Perhaps he could prove it was a material fact. I think it'd be a challenge as the Judge Davis noted, but how could he prove that on behalf of others, especially given his individual circumstances? Another question, did it cause injury? If a class member even suffered an injury, it would depend on whether the structural damage was disclosed, but it would also depend on the price they paid. And I remember Judge Kaplan saying this at the hearing, what if they paid a price that reflected structural damage? Well, we will never know that. All we have here is a number. And there's another issue that didn't make its way into the decision at all, but it was another issue that I, I framed for Judge Kaplan. I argued that Carlos Cabrera couldn't adequately represent absent class members. And the gist of that argument was, what if we put on this case, what if I convince a jury that the rocker panel damage wasn't material and they agree with me that at least in terms of Carlos Cabrera, this is immaterial, it would be unfair to the other class members for that judgment to be binding on them when it depended entirely on the condition of Mr. Cabrera's vehicle. There was a lot of back and forth at the oral argument on that, but it did not make its way into the decision. And one final point, Judge, I think you saw this in his decision, the ascertainability doctrine, which is something that the a lot of federal courts buy into. In the Third Circuit, a case Carrera has really kind of pioneered it. And there's no Massachusetts case. Uh, the appellate courts have not yet weighed in on it. But Judge Kaplan, as you can see, is a big believer in the ascertainability doctrine. And what that means is there needs to be a principled way based largely on the defendant's own records to determine who is or who is not in the class. And if you got to rely on class member affidavits, that's not fair to the defendant and that doesn't suffice. For example, if the class notice goes out and there's a question that the class member has to answer under the pains and penalties of perjury, was structural damage disclosed to you? They could write yes, they could write no, but that would be their way of getting into the class. Now, if you allow you know, a plaintiff's lawyer to do that, you're effectively depriving the defendant of its due process right 
to challenge individual claims. So I guess we shall see what our appellate courts do with the ascertainability doctrine, but it was certainly a factor in this one. And like I said, Judge Kaplan is a, a big believer in it. Mark, thank you for your time today. Congratulations on a huge victory. Thank you, Bob. That's our show. Check out the show notes for more information on today's case. Also, if you were involved in an interesting civil case or know about one that you think would be a good topic for the show, reach out to me at rstetson at bernkoflegal.com. That's rstetson at b-e-r-n-k-o-p-f legal.com. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to this podcast and leave us a positive review. Follow us on Instagram at Legal Judgments, on Twitter at Legal underscore Judgments, and on LinkedIn at Legal Judgments Podcast. And don't forget that E in Judgments.